You know who was a really underrated Marvel villain, Miles? Obviously the Red Ghost, Jay. Okay, fair enough, but I was actually thinking of Atlan the Dolphin. Is he actually a dolphin? He is. How's a dolphin a supervillain? Can he, I don't know, breathe on land? Nope. He goes around in a tank of water. Okay, so he's got to have superpowers, right? Like the one from Johnny Mnemonic. Telekinesis, or maybe mind control. No, not that I know of. So, how is he a supervillain? I mean, he's a really evil dolphin. What?! I'm Jay Edden. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 383 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to... Oh boy. So our mission is to explain X-Men continuity. To explain, in theory, all of X-Men continuity. We do skip some things, like some of the solo series that are more tangential, but sometimes there's a topic that just impacts a couple of core X-Men characters enough that we definitely want to talk about it. And sometimes that topic continues to be, just like last episode, the Crimson fucking Dawn. So I figured out what the deal with the Crimson Dawn is. Like, I was trying to place what it felt like for a really long time, and I finally figured it out this week. Oh, yeah? It's a shitty Daredevil arc. You are not wrong. There's ninjas and mystical nonsense and possession and angst. Right, and Psylocke and the Electro Roll. I'm sure I've mentioned this on the show before, but I still remember that time I went to an antique mall. You might have been there. I don't remember if you were. I was, and yeah, there, was, yeah. there were the Electra and Psylocke that were just, just painted differently. Exactly. I never really realized that Electra and Psylocke had almost the same outfit, but they kind of do. Like, Electra's got that skirt part, but aside from that, it's very similar. It's a one-piece bathing suit and a bunch of strappy nonsense, but Electra wears red and Psylocke wears purple. And similar, you know, morally gray outlooks and ninja stuff. Mm-hmm. So, this is the Psylocke and Archangel Crimson Dawn miniseries, which takes place very slightly after the Dragons of the Crimson Dawn arc of Excalibur that we just covered. It is the last big Crimson Dawn story ever. Like, the Crimson Dawn will occasionally come up again. I mean, Psylocke's going to have some Crimson Dawn stuff going on for a while. We'll, We'll get to that. But this is it. This is the climax of the Crimson Dawn saga. The epic Crimson Dawn legacy revelations redemption origin. I do appreciate that at no point did they try to call it a saga. No, no, they didn't even bother. Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's a comic. It's fine. Like, I was actually very optimistic going in because it's written by Ben Robb and it's drawn by Salvador La Roca. Not my two favorite creators, but two creators who just did a pretty good arc of Excalibur, also featuring the Crimson Dawn. Except that the good parts were the parts that didn't feature the Crimson Dawn. Yeah, see, that's the thing. And so when you go all Crimson Dawn, and when you go with two characters that Robb doesn't write nearly as well as he writes, say, Nightcrawler, in this case Archangel and Psylocke, you get a, a lesser product. You get four issues of pure focus on that lesser product, which 
is another thing that's happening. Like, I feel like this could have sustained two issues of an ongoing, but I wonder at it needing its own miniseries. Well, as we have discussed many times, the 90s are just glutted with miniseries. There are miniseries clogging up the miniseries that are covering up the miniseries that are blocking you from getting to the miniseries. All of that said, I'm excited to talk about this. I think there are a lot of things to be said about this miniseries. There's some fun stuff. There's some silly stuff. There's some really iffy stuff. I'm excited to have talked about it. That's how I feel about running. Like, my favorite part of a run is getting home from having done the run and feeling very proud of myself and not having to run anymore. Well. Before we can get to this final climactic finale to the Crimson Dawn saga, let's talk about how the relevant characters got to this point. So, this miniseries focuses primarily on two characters, which you'd think would make it kind of simple, except the two characters in question are Archangel, Warren Kenneth Worthington III, and Psylocke, Betsy Braddock. And, um, I mean, they're not Summerses, but, but they're definitely about as complicated. I guess let's start with Archangel. Let's start with Warren Kenneth Worthington III, the Avenging Angel and one of the founding X-Men. Also an actual literal hawk, we assure you. A long story. That's a lie. He just does everything exactly like a hawk. I mean, there are nuances. A lot of ins, a lot of outs, a lot of what-have-yous. After successfully swooping and dodging around for years, Warren zigged one time when he should have zagged, and was crucified by his wings to a sewer wall during the Mutant Massacre. This would later turn out to be an elaborate setup engineered by his best frenemy, Cameron Hodge. But as it turned out, um, following this, Warren's wings became infected and had to be amputated, after which a feverish Warren uh, fled the hospital, piloted an airplane to get back into the sky, and promptly crashed into a mountain and died. The villainous apocalypse restored Warren to life, but decided to, you know, soup him up a little— replacing his angelic feathery wings with razor-sharp metal ones, instilling in him a killer instinct, and transforming Warren into his Horseman of Death. Now, the other original X-Men, then X-Factor, freed Warren from Apocalypse's well-branded evil, and Warren renamed himself Archangel and rejoined his friends without ever quite feeling fully human again. Um, However, he has recently discovered that his feathered wings have regenerated, growing beneath and eventually pushing out the metal ones. He's also somewhat recently hooked up with Psylocke, another woman with a dark past killer instinct and history of transformations— Let's talk a little bit about who she is. So Psylocke is Elizabeth Betsy Braddock. She's the twin sister of Brian Braddock, best known as Captain Britain. She first stepped onto the scene as a mildly telepathic fashion model. But after a brief stint as an emergency Captain Britain um, left her with robot eyes, she ended up in the United States and joined up with the X-Men as Psylocke, quickly becoming a core member of the team after the mutant massacre and sticking with them through the Outback era. Unfortunately, that era ended pretty badly, with most of the X-Men running away from various cyborgs and robots into the Siege Perilous, a mystical portal that rewrites the memories and identity of anybody who goes through it. Now, Betsy got extra rewritten, thanks not only to the Siege Perilous, but to the Notorious Hand, Ninja Clan, and the body-twisting Sorcerer Spiral, who was also responsible for her robot eyes back in the day. Um, and her mind was kind of sort of swapped into the body of an ambiguously Asian ninja assassin named Quanan. 
it's complicated. Like, really complicated. Like, however complicated you think it is, it's worse than that. Ditto however problematic you think it is. Mm-hmm. Betsy rejoined the X-Men, fighting alongside them until she was almost killed by Sabretooth, who also nearly ripped Warren's wings apart. Now, with some help from Wolverine and a sorcerer named Gomer the Ancient, Warren headed into the ambiguously Asian dimension of the Crimson Dawn to find a way to save Betsy. After Warren gave up the part of Betsy's soul that she'd entrusted to his love, Gomer cast a spell to use the Crimson Dawn's energy to heal Betsy, leaving her with a rad face tattoo, neat new shadow powers, and a much darker personality. Which brings us to Psylocke and Archangel Crimson Dawn number one, Before the Break of Dawn. Written by Ben Robb, penciled by Salvador Laroca, inked by Art Taber, Roy Allen Martinez, Sean Parsons, and Hack Shack Studios, colored by Christian Lichtner, Aaron Lucen, and LIQUID! Lettered by Richard Starkings and Comacraft, and Cole Fuse, and Albert Deshane. And I, sh- I should add, uh, LIQUID has an exclamation point after it, so I assume is always to be read in a yell. Yeah, but not as much of a yell as if it had been written also in all capital letters. Right, then you would just bellow it like the tick. Exactly. We'd have to pull back from the microphone or else we'd clip. So these issues actually have almost the same credits for every issue. We have a lot of inkers for every issue. The way the colors are credited are done a little bit differently, but those two names are part of LIQUID! And uh, the letterer assists come and go, but aside from that, pretty much the same. Which, hey, at least it's consistent. I like that part. Somewhat. So the cover tagline of this issue is, Within her heart lies the purest of loves and the greatest of evils. Which goes pretty hard. I I enjoy that. This summer you will believe in ninjas. No, I won't. Yes, you you will. I I said it in my convincing movie voice. You have to. I, I don't believe everything that I hear just because it's resonant, man. Damn it, now I have to go home and evaluate my life choices. So... This issue opens with a character named Tar, whom we first met in Uncanny X-Men number 327 and who is the proctor of the Crimson Dawn, dying in an alleyway. Tar is on the run from a dude named Kuragari, whom we have not met before, and Kuragari controls the neon spiders that, that we have seen before and turns them on Tar, apparently killing him. That said... Psych out, Tar was not dead quite yet. He survives just long enough for an intangible Gomer the Ancient to find him and to choke out the name Koragari as his last word. So when we had seen Tar and Gomer the Ancient previously, they've only interacted once, we've seen Gomer much more, mostly yelling at Juggernaut, they were kind of rivals. Tar was a mean guy that ran the dimension of the Crimson Dawn, and Gomer was a wizard that did stuff with it, but that Tar didn't like very much. We're going to find out a lot more about their relationship in this miniseries and about the specific nuances of that apparent enmity. So, Kuragari has taken over the Crimson Dawn Dimension as its new proctor, and he has done this by right of arms. He's basically, you know, killed the previous proctor and thus ascended to the throne. Uh, he also goes by the title Shogun of the Shadows. Which is awesome. And Kuragari is getting ready to take over Earth, because it turns out that the dragons of the Crimson Dawn, those three folks that we met in Excalibur, have eroded just enough of the barrier between dimensions for Kuragari's conquest to begin in earnest. Now the only thing in the way is what he describes as the Ninja Girl, which is what everyone calls Psylocke over and over and over in this miniseries. I mean, they could at least call her the Ninja Woman. 
Age-wise, she's sort of in the middle of the X-Men. Yeah, I don't know, man. Um, this is, this is, this, this is part of what kind of reinforces my sense that this might be a Daredevil arc secretly. Fair enough. Like, you know, we, we, we take any ninja girl. I mean, they could just accidentally kidnap Electro. It'd be kind of the same story, except then you'd have Daredevil being all angsty instead of Archangel. But, like, it's, it's, it's so, oh god, it's such a Daredevil story. Not only that, but, like, the extent to which, you know, the honest love of a good man is the only thing that can rescue a woman from her own power. Which, in addition to something we've seen in X-Men before, is an unfortunately frequent Daredevil theme. Yup. Yes, it is. All of that said, let's talk about the aesthetics of the Crimson Dawn here, because we've seen the dimension of the Crimson Dawn before, and mostly it was just a red place without very detailed backgrounds. So, you've played the game Brutal Legend, right? Uh, multiple times. I love that game. I sort of think of the Crimson, Do- uh, Crimson Dawn as a suburb of that that world. Uh, yes, that totally works. It is a very specific brand of especially satanic heavy metal, albeit with some ambiguously Asian influences. One of my favorite bits, one of my favorite visuals that is very metal is something we did not see last time. When we first saw the throne of the Crimson Dawn back in that Uncanny X-Men arc, it was just a chair. I mean, a cool big stone chair, but just a chair. And this time, as we see Kuragari sitting on it, sitting on this casually thrown, rich purple plume of fabric, his throne is the outstretched claw of a gigantic, goddamn, evil-looking demon statue. So, what we know about Kuragari at this point is that he's pretty murderous, and he's got a keen eye for interior decoration. He really does. He's kind of cool-looking himself, too. I, I guess, I don't know, he basically looks like a more manga-ified sunspot with Psylocke's Crimson Dawn mark over one eye. He looks... To me, just intensely, and I know some of this is art style, but he really looks like he should be a Street Fighter boss. Yeah, you know, you were not wrong. I could totally see Ryu facing off against this guy. Yeah, and he'd have he'd have some kind of move that shot, like, a fireball, but purple and, like, spikier. Okay. So he's kind of like a more streamlined Akuma, is what you're saying. Which, come to think of it, yeah, basically that. Yep, yep. So... He sends his underlings, his undercloaks as they're called, off to give Psylocke a present. And it's a present whose nature is not divulged at this point, but will supposedly tip her into madness and thereby toward the Crimson Dawn. Spoiler, it's a ring. Oh, I figured it was that one arc of Generation X that made the leprechauns all confusing. That nearly broke our minds. But would it tip her toward the Crimson Dawn is my question. Like, I feel like that's the kind of thing that ends with you in the mojo verse. Oh, yeah, maybe. Or at least hanging out with more leprechauns. Okay, yeah, I guess if you're going for a specific kind of madness, you gotta get a little more selective. Are there leprechauns in or affiliated with the Crimson Dawn? This is not something that has been explored, I think. I mean, leprechauns wear wear green, and the Crimson Dawn is red, so... So, no, that's impossible. Do all leprechauns wear green? I don't think they all do in X-Men. Uh, I don't know, actually. No, I guess they wear a bunch of different colors, but now I'm just thinking of the Gen X arc that had more leprechauns, and that was just so confusing, and now I don't understand anything about leprechauns, and I think I have to go join the Crimson Dawn. So, what you're saying is that, by rules of Gen X, there may in fact be Crimson Dawn leprechauns. I suppose that's true, but I don't want to go back to that story to find out, because I've just barely gotten my head together after it now. I go back to that story regularly in my deepest nightmares. Ugh. I don't recommend it. 
Anyway, the Crimson Dawn itself, let's talk a little bit about what its deal is, because this is initially pretty ambiguous. Okay, so first of all, it's not the same thing as the Crimson Cosmos, which is what lives inside the the Crimson Gem of Sidorak. Right. Uh, According to the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, A to Z, number 12, they're actually adjacent dimensions. That is in the article in there from the journals of Ian McNee, The Outer Plains, parentheses, The Consecution of Colors, close parentheses. I don't know what a consecution is, but it sounds badass. I assume that it's the noun form of consecutive. Oh. Yeah, okay. I'm into that. I'm still just as into that. Uh, We have seen that the buildings in the Dimension of the Crimson Dawn do not have windows or doors because everybody there can travel through the shadows. Which Psylocke can now also do. Right, but, like, that doesn't seem like a good idea. I mean, I know everything's red, but sometimes you want some sunlight. Or, like, a cross breeze if it's a hot summer day. Come on, this is not practical. Well, and if there's too much direct sunlight, you just can't get home. That's a really good point, yeah. See, that's the thing, though, with the Crimson Dawn— We've had, at this point, three Crimson Dawn stories. This is the third big one, and I couldn't tell you anything about how the Hellless Dimension works. Like, we know there's a Proctor who runs it. We know it's full of energy shit that can empower people or heal people. But, like, who lives there? What's its political structure? What's its culture like? We don't know. We've seen the Proctor, the other Proctor, and a bunch of fucking ninjas, and that's it. As far as who lives there, the answer appears to be the Undercloaks. Whether there's, like, a Crimson Dawn proletariat, I'm not sure. And it appears at least to be an absolute monarchy. I guess so, but I don't know. This doesn't seem like a very rich or interesting world. It's not. True. I guess we just have to accept that. I just want it to be more. I don't know. You have a throne that badass? Like, I want to build a whole cool culture around it, not just a dude and his ninjas. I want the Crimson Dawn to have gateways from Spirit Halloween pop-ups. Oh, I love this plan. Yes, yes, please, this. Like, that's its aesthetic. Its aesthetic is like modern Spirit Halloween. Complete with a little bit of cultural appropriation. You are not wrong. Uh Uh-huh. Anyway, outside of this ambiguous, somewhat boring, and slightly Spirit Halloween-y dimension, Warren Kenneth Worthington III, actual hawk, heads home to his Soho loft and to his girlfriend, Psylocke. Now, they're fun and flirtatious at first, but when Warren tells Betsy that he got tickets to a Broadway show, Betsy goes cold. She can't face the world. Not yet. Um, She is super on edge, and she's overcome with violent rages that even shut off her telepathy temporarily. Yeah, she's really all over the place moment to moment here, from aggressive to playfully sexy to completely cold— I mean, certainly she's been through some serious trauma. Like, she got gutted by Sabretooth, and that's actually not the first time he's tried to do that. That was one of her first big X-Men stories, something similar happening. And, you know, she also had a bunch of weird magical shit happen, but I don't know, the way this is written, Jay, do you you buy this? What's implied is that in addition to dealing with her trauma, the Crimson Dawn did something really fundamental to her head. Like, that, that her mind is somehow different and she's still kind of figuring out how. Alas, Warren takes a lesson from Forge's bad boyfriend playbook. Yeah, he basically storms out, saying that maybe the best part of her did die, and she's definitely not the same person he fell in love with. Which dick move. Come on, Warren, it took you literal years to get over being Archangel, and you're still not quite there. And, like, the whole time, Betsy was super supportive, even in that really bizarre one-shot that was drawn in ballpoint pen. 
Which brings us to what might be the worst thing about living in New York City. Every once in a while, Wolverine shows up, uninvited, to give you relationship advice. You gotta take the chance that this might not be about you. Oh, like Warren's ever gonna take that chance on anything. I mean, good advice, I gotta say. Yeah, at this point in continuity, I believe Logan was actually based out of New York, uh, specifically Soho, so they were kinda neighbors. No, he just does that. Like, it's awful. You have a minor argument, you go to bed, you wake up to someone, like, scratching on your window, and it's 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 Wolverine just sitting outside shouting some kind of, like, very general cliché. Or, like, if you don't let him in, then all of a sudden you just see this hand with three claws just reach under the crack under your door and start, like, feeling around. And he just comes and he drinks your beer, he, again, gives you broadly applicable relationship advice, and then he just leaves. Eh, just turn on a vacuum cleaner, he'll run away. So Psylocke, meanwhile, tests her humanity by fighting a bunch of holograms. Uh, I'd like to note here that this is training program Delta Omicron Upsilon Gamma, which spells out Doug, which is fascinating, especially when after fighting all of her various nemeses in holo form, Slaymaster and Matsuo and Spiral and everybody, Doug Ramsey does indeed show up to confront her. It's easy to forget, but Doug Ramsey was one of the first characters in America that Betsy really bonded with. They had this quasi-romantic, despite being very far apart in age, relationship for a while. It was a whole thing. I It was more Doug having a crush on Betsy, I think. I don't know. The way Claremont wrote that? Yeah, I, I think I would like to remember it as mostly having been Doug having a crush on Betsy. Speaking of the way Claremont wrote things, uh, one thing that is very consistent with his version of writing Psylocke after her body swap slash transformation is that in this miniseries, Psylocke continues to have various uh, Japanese and Chinese and other Asian trappings all around her, from the outfit she's wearing before training to the paper screens in the room and the shrine that she's built. Like, it's almost like the way that uh, Tom Corsi and Sharon Friedlander, I know we haven't talked about them in a while, but they sort of got transformed into Native Americans for being white people in the Demon Bear Saga. And all of a sudden, they started wearing stereotypically Native American clothing. And that's really what we've seen with Betsy as well, which is not a comfortable thing and is weird as hell, but I guess I appreciate continuity being consistent, I guess? No, it's similarly problematically ambiguous, culturally ambiguous here, too. And with Betsy... It would make sense if it were more culturally specific just because she and Quanan have some of each other's consciousnesses. But with with Corsi and Friedlander, it was it was just entirely gratuitous. The enti- that entire fucking storyline was entirely gratuitous. And here, again, the 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 generic East Asian melange of Psylocke's cultural trappings is problematic in and of itself. Well, and the Crimson Dawn's cultural trappings. Like, we saw that a little bit in the last Crimson Dawn story. Is it connected with Chinese culture? Is it connected with Japanese culture? I mean, it's from another dimension, but clearly it connects way more to those than, say, Des Moines culture. Yeah, it's the dimension of Western Orientalism. The dimension of Western Orientalism. I bet that's a plane in Dungeons & Dragons. I bet it's a whole set of source books from early Dungeons & Dragons. That may be true. And that leads us to Crimson Dawn number two, when the devil comes to call in. So, back in Chinatown, Gomer the Ancient is performing a burial rite on the body of Tar, the former proctor. 
It's to get Tar's soul ready for the next life and the cycle of reincarnation. It's also to cleanly incinerate the body. They hated each other, but, you know, there's a hierarchy to these things. Apparently a very small hierarchy since there were, like, three people in the dimension of the Crimson Dawn. But still... That's not true. There are so many Undercloaks. I just realized that I've started thinking of the Undercloaks as basically the wraiths from what we do in the shadows. Oh, yeah, you know, you're you're not wrong. That works really well. Yeah. Warren himself is flying through the rain, debating the best way to talk to Betsy. He's wondering, should I stage an intervention? Should I recommend that she be committed? Warren, maybe neither of those things? Maybe he should just date Forge, because at this point I'm going to go ahead and say they deserve each other. Right? Anyway, it's Cable's job to throw people in straitjackets when they act funny, not Warren's. That said, I gotta give Warren some credit. He does have some good insight that, you know, maybe both of them having been transformed into weapons, plus being really hot to jump each other's bones, isn't enough basis for a relationship. And this book scratches the surface of exploring that, scratches the surface of exploring, is their bond something more than that? Is it more than shared trauma and sexual attraction? Other stories will do that a little bit better, but I like that it tries. It scratches the surface, but it never really quite breaks through, as we'll see in future issues. But you know who does break through? Undercloaks! They show up in Betsy's dojo, and they set it on fire, and she fights them, and I'll give it to them. Like most things from the Crimson Dawn, they look pretty cool. They're just these pure black ninja silhouettes with glowing red coming from the eye slits in their masks. They look a little like the musicians in the band Magic Sword, but, you know, ninjas instead of wizards. Or the wraiths from what we do in the shadows. Or the wraiths. Which is consistent with the fact that their, their idea of deliver a present is set the recipients home on fire. God damn it, Undercloaks. We actually did see the Undercloaks attack Betsy in a previous issue of X-Men, where she was having a big fight with them, but then when Warren showed up in the loft, she was just sitting there meditating again, which had this whole unreliable narrator, like, is she really perceiving reality thing that was kind of cool, and is utterly abandoned here. There's no nuance, nope, ninjas just show up, set the dojo on fire, and start ninjaing at her. I thought those earlier ones were hallucinatory Undercloaks. It was unclear, and I liked that ambiguity. I thought we would see maybe more of that, but, uh, alas. So Warren puts out the fire, and he puts out the fire by flapping his wings real hard in the rain. Which, look, I don't actually know that much about fluid dynamics or about firefighting, but this is iffy, right? This is iffy, but here's the thing. When Warren then rejoins the fight, he gets his ass kicked, because he is used to having razor-sharp metal wings that can fire paralytic flechettes and now he doesn't have that anymore now he just has his old feather angel wings and he doesn't really know what to do like all he used to do was swoop and dodge and it's a real downgrade going from like cutting people's heads off and shooting flechettes at them to just swooping and dodging so maybe he's trying to branch out a little also he has tragically gone from being amazingly and gorgeously walter simonson designed to just like a blue guy there are so many blue guys in x-men and blue girls just blue people well, it's, it's a distinct—light blue, at least, is a distinctive color that stands out pretty well from the palette and is part of sort of e easy to easy to, to put together with a, a base color set and also substitutes in pretty commonly for black or for highlights on black and so gets substitute colored in as, as happened with Beast when he went from gray to blue. Mm, very true. Very true. Amid the pools of ninja blood, Betsy finds a golden ring and acts kind of weird about the whole thing. Let me guess— 
You wanted this to be a special surprise for me. It's... it's enchanting. Have you ever seen anything so radiant? So beautiful? Precious, it calls to us. I mean, pretty much. Like, I think that's the intent. Like, this is supposed to be a sort of golem thing where she's bewitched by this magical ring. But, I don't know, she just comes off as kind of, like, shallow. We want it. See, that would be better. I just want Andy Circus to play Betsy Braddock in this story. It wouldn't hurt. Yeah, I'm down. That said... There is some continuity here as well. We do know that Ben Robb is very well-versed in ex-continuity, even when it's not explicitly called out. And, Jay, you may remember that in that Acts of Vengeance storyline, where Betsy was transformed into Lady Mandarin and then became Psylocke when the whole body swap transformation thing happened, right. she went through this fantasy sequence where she did terrible things to people in her life, and every time she did, she got one of the Mandarin's ten rings. And when she got all ten of them, that's when she was fully under the control of the Mandarin and the Hand. So this is kind of like that. I kind of wish they did call it out more explicitly, though, because here it just comes off as silly. Yeah, the parallel would have been really, really nice to bring back, because that was, I mean, Acts of Vengeance was not exactly Sub Rosa, but I doubt front and center in many people's minds by the point that this came out. Exactly, yeah. We do get a nice vertically split page after this, though, which goes back and forth, left to right, between Warren in the blue light of a TV worrying about Betsy's changes, and Betsy herself in the blue light of the night sky coming through the windows, withdrawing further and further, and deciding that she has to overcome this darkness alone. Like, that's some good character work right there. That page is solid. You know what I really wish they'd gone into more in this miniseries, and specifically with regards to the transformation of their relationship? What's that? The fact that to get the Crimson Dawn essence, Warren literally gave up the part of her that loved him. Yeah, yeah, that was kind of poetic and cool and also ambiguous at the time. And we'll see references to that, but they never really go into that part. And I feel like that's emblematic of this miniseries as a whole. There's a lot of potentially cool stuff here. Not the Crimson Dawn parts, that shit's boring. But, you know, the Warren Betsy parts. And then the story just does a different thing every time. Yeah, it, again, it, 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 it scratches at the surface, but it never really pushes through to anything substantial. So anyway, Koragari is, is pretty mad to hear that the, the gift-giving didn't go as planned. <laughs> Which, I mean, I don't know what he was expecting. I don't know what the Undercloaks were supposed to do. They literally just showed up, jumped her, and set her house on fire, and then just dropped the ring on their way out. I kind of feel like that's the only thing they know how to do. Like, when all you have is a demon crimson katana, every problem looks like a thing to be stabbed with a demon crimson katana. Or immolated. Or immolated. Either way is fine. You have two options. And, uh, Kurigari does what evil overlords do to establish themselves as villains and, of course, kills one of his underlings for failing, although he's glad that they at least dropped the ring where she could pick it up. And it clearly worked out. We do see Kurigari's castle for the first time here. It is like if the Skeksis Palace from the Dark Crystal was composed of scrap metal and was in a hell dimension. It's it's kind of awesome looking. Like, the Crimson Dawn, the tiny little bits we see of this dimension are cool. They just, you know, don't really come together to anything coherent. Like, I don't know, I just want to see, I want to see cities of this. Like, we've seen some buildings with their lack of windows and doors, but but what else? I mean... Are there libraries? Probably because they're really into magic stuff. Okay, are there monorails? Unlikely. There's the shadow stepping, which kind of obviates them. 
Are there Arby's? I mean, it's a hell dimension, so absolutely. Mmm, demon horsey sauce. All we've seen is proctors and ninjas. Damn it, Crimson Dawn, I'm not saying you should come back for another story because you're zero for three at this point, but but I want to hear about your evil Arby's. So, after murdering his underling, Kuragari villain explains to no one in particular that as soon as Betsy puts on the ring, he'll have her soul and they'll get married and have evil babies that will rule this place forever. Which, like, I, I don't know, man. It's, it's, it's not a very well-thought-out plan. Truly is not. Warren, meanwhile, sleeping next to Betsy, is dreaming of her asking him which is the real her, her old body, or her new one. And when he says that she needs to take off the ring that she's wearing to truly be herself again, she tries to kill him. At which point, Gomer the Ancient shows up in Warren's dream to protect him. And, uh, yeah, Betsy's Kurigari in the dream, Gomer's protecting Warren, and when everybody wakes up, yeah, Gomer's just sitting there on their bed. He took a shift from Wolverine. Exactly. Oh god, Wolverine and Gomer, like, I know they've hung out before, but if it was just the two of them, or if it was the two of them, like, as partners, they would just be insufferable to everybody around them. The two of them running a relationship advice late-night radio show. Oh god, I thought Dr. Drew and Adam Carolla was terrible back in the day. It would be a different sort of terrible. Yeah. Well, Gomer tries to help Betsy get the ring off in real life, but it doesn't work. And in fact, kind of like in the dream, Kuragari appears out of nowhere and yoinks Betsy into a shadow, gloating villainously all the while. Which brings us to Crimson Dawn number three, The Dark Side. And this opens with Warren clearly having some trouble distinguishing between relationship problems and Crimson Dawn problems. Like, he, he keeps on talking about how he just doesn't know where their relationship's going. Like, Betsy keeps on getting kidnapped by ninjas and stuff, and now there's this whole other dimensional thing that's like, Warren, that's not the issue with your relationship. Well, that said, those two topics are a little bit conflated. At some point, as Betsy is thinking about her predicament, she thinks to herself, Could it be that when Warren saved me from certain death, he incurred a debt too great for me to pay? And I like that, that he incurred a debt too great for her to pay. The idea of who's making the decisions and who's paying the price, like, that's the compelling core of this story. That that surface just keeps getting scratched, and that's it. Wait, is the Crimson Dawn an allegory for America's healthcare system? I'm gonna say... yes. Okay. That's the most sense it's ever made. Let's go with it. The Crimson Dawn, I mean, America's healthcare system still makes no sense. Mm, fair. So, Warren flies down to retrieve Gomer, who's basically fine after being tossed out of a ten-story window, and Gomer tells Warren that Warren's gonna have to infiltrate the Crimson Dawn while Gomer hangs out and keeps tabs on reality. He also explains the most recent arc of Excalibur, which you can hear us explain in episode 382, Seven of Swords. And, and Gomer tells Warren... Your wits will be your greatest weapon once you insinuate yourself into the Crimson Dawn. And I was expecting, I don't know, there'd be some kind of, like, disguise. That Warren would have to blend in with the populace and go through the drive through line at an Arby's or something. And he'd have to rise through the ranks under an assumed identity. That it would be something like the Judgment War storyline of X-Factor, but... No, no, Gomer's just gonna teleport Warren directly into the dimension and Betsy's gonna be right there. Like, none of the stuff that would have been interesting happens. 
Well, Betsy has been having her own problems in the dimension of the Crimson Dawn. Um, she wakes up there and Kuragari welcomes her to the dark side in giant letters and also introduces himself. And he says that she's an undercloak now and he's her master, but Betsy is not buying it. And he also insists, and this is the context where the quote about the debt comes from, when a mortal life essence is mixed with the dawn's revitalizing aspect, a soul is always claimed as payment. Okay, but they paid a soul. It's um, it's kind of confusing. They paid, like, a portion of a soul, but it was a portion of Betsy's soul that lived inside Warren's soul. Okay, so they owe, so they owe part of a soul. You would think, though, that that's the kind of thing they put on the tin. Uh, yeah, you know, nobody really reads through the end-user license agreement. They just click accept. So, Betsy and Kuragari fight a bunch, and Kuragari just keeps winning and winning and winning and winning. At one point, he knocks Betsy into these displays of samurai armor, which, you know, fine, warlord, keeps armor, sure. But, like, when they fall over on the ground, it turns out there were skeletons inside? I have questions. Well, he's gotta keep a skeleton somewhere. That's true, I guess that would keep all the bones, like, in the right place. Yeah, and it, you know, keeps them off out of the floor, and he can get to them pretty easily if he needs them. I guess it's either that or a box in the corner labeled bones. Well, it's, it's like having nesting boxes. You know, the, the, the skeletons, which are the, the piece that he, he wants to have accessible but not necessarily on display, fit cleanly in the piece he wants to have display. It's like how some Ottomans have storage inside them. That's very efficient. Well done. I can see why this guy is temporary proctor. Again, decorating is his strong suit. Fair. So... Eventually, Betsy is, is knocked out, and he, he has the undercloaks drag her off. And the next time we see her, uh, Warren is trying to sneak up to the palace, and Betsy attacks him, saying she's an undercloak now and the Dread Queen of Koragari. That brings us to Crimson Dawn number four, The Dawning Dusk. The Dawning Dusk? Jay, is that awesome or stupid? Stupid. Damn it. Warren does indeed face evil Betsy, but now she's in her own Black Ninja outfit, and her skin is dark blue. Oh, great, another fucking blue mutant. That's just what we need. Wow, racist much? There are just so many! Why can't they pick another color, like a nice lemony yellow or a carrot orange or something? Something vegetal. Well, if we're talking about traditions from older coloring, those are way, way too close to the halftones used for, for Caucasian skin tones. And I suspect what they're doing here is exactly what you mentioned before, which is using dark blue as a stand-in for the color black, since that would uh, be kind of hard to make out detail on a comics page. Betsy has some things to say, too, um, and some things to say that may be recognizable to those of you who are around for the Dark Phoenix saga. She says, I am so much more than the woman you knew. I am one with the shadows, a true creature of the darkness. But above all else, I am your death. Yeah, yeah, that phrase, the woman you knew, that's exactly something Jean says when she first emerges as Phoenix from the wreckage of that plane in the ocean. That is um ambitious right there. You know, if you're going to reference the Dark Phoenix saga in your miniseries, I feel like you are uh, showing a lot of confidence in your story, which, you know, works out sometimes and doesn't work out other times. We call this the overdrawn-at-the-memory-bank problem. Mm, we do. Betsy easily beats Warren, and after that, Kuragari descends upside down like a smug bat, and then they make out. 
and she calls him sensei, which, come on, there's like a power imbalance if he's your sensei, but I think there may also be uh, quite a few other ethical issues with this relationship. Yeah, yeah, just a couple. So Kuragari villains lanes. Right, when Warren gave part of Betsy's soul to the Crimson Dawn to save her, it created the imbalance that weakened Tar enough to be killed, and Kuragari has only been able to claim Betsy due to what Warren did. Uh, does... wait, wait, what? Yeah, so, um, it's time for Kuragari and Betsy and the Undercloaks to take over the world. Okay, wait a goddamn minute. Like, I know Betsy is now evil, and she's very good at fighting and ninja-ing, but how is, like, this one ninja lady gonna be the one who's gonna flip the balance? And, like, Gomer mentioned earlier that the Crimson Dawn dimension was gonna bleed into the real world, but, like... How? How is any of this happening? It kind of seems like Kuragari has about a dozen and a half ninjas and an evil Psylocke, and he talks about having evil babies someday, and that's really all he has going for him, and Earth is big. Sorry, that was extremely funny. <laughs> Thank you. The end Earth is big was really... <laughs> um, well, we know, we know how the Crimson Dawn dimension is bleeding into Earth. That's because of the shit that the dragons pulled in Excalibur. Okay, okay, granted. And we don't know how quickly gestation occurs in the Crimson Dawn dimension, so it could be that they're going to have evil babies like tomorrow. So you're saying that Betsy's going to be some dark blue evil ninja insect queen, and she's going to giant pulsating bulbous abdomen and just start spewing out hundreds of little ninja babies? Dude, I don't know how ninjas reproduce. I assume that way? That's the thing, though. This plan, just like everything else Kuragari does, just like everything else about the Crimson Dawn, is underdeveloped to the point of barely existing. Like, certainly I wouldn't want a bunch of ninjas attacking Earth. That doesn't seem like a good thing. But it also doesn't seem any more threatening than any given thing that happens in any given issue of a Marvel comic. And significantly less threatening than many. I know, right? But uh, it's not great, and obviously we don't want our friend Betsy to be evil and possessed, and we don't want Warren to be sad about that, so so those are bad things. Uh, the bad guys all head off, except for the Undercloaks, who stick around to kill Warren, but apparently Betsy dropped some of her energy shuriken. Was it an accident, or is she slightly less possessed? I was so confused at that point, because I thought her energy shuriken were things made of psychic energy. And I really don't understand how you can drop those for someone else to use. Betsy will later be able to, once she goes telekinetic after her power swap with Jean, uh, be able to create, like, physical defined weapons telekinetically. But yeah, she can't do that yet. Right now what she has is her psychic knife, which is the focused totality of her psychic might, and is basically just a visual representation of her using telepathy offensively. So, uh, the answer to your question is, uh, I don't know, this doesn't make any sense. But nonetheless, Warren fights, quote, like one possessed. But basically, he just, in the art, throws one ninja star. I wish he had that pipe bazooka thing he was holding on the cover to the very first issue of X-Men, that to this day, nobody can figure out what the hell that thing was. Yeah, um, including Warren, which may be why he didn't bring it here. Maybe. I'm just saying, you lose your metal-sharp razor wings, you lose your flechettes, maybe you go back and you think, hey, remember that one time that I fought Magneto on the cover to the first issue of X-Men, and I was holding, like, that metal thing that nobody knows what it was? Well, that was kind of cool. Do I still have that thing? Is that under one of those Ottomans full of samurai bones? 
Okay, obviously there are complicated ethical conversations to be had about the use of firearms in comics, but I would 100% be there for Warren losing his flechettes and just going out and getting a gun. <laughs> right? He'd be like Shadow the Hedgehog. Oh yeah, I forgot Shadow the Hedgehog had a gun. That was definitely a narrative choice that someone made. It was a time. It was the 2000s. All sorts of things were happening. Anyway, thankfully we don't have to see any of these things because... Gomer the Ancient shows up to teleport Warren out of the fight and into the chamber of the Ebon Vein, which was that place where Warren made that whole soul deal thing back in Uncanny. Now, the reason Gomer is there is that Tar's force ghost showed up, um, made Gomer the real new proctor of the Crimson Dawn, and then fucked off. Uh, yes, so apparently if you take the proctorship of the Crimson Dawn by right of arms, that is superseded by the force ghost of the previous proctor just nominating somebody. Well, as it turns out, a lot of his rivalry with Gomer over the years has been him basically testing and preparing Gomer to one day ascend to Proctorhood of the Crimson Dawn. I mean, yeah, okay, I'll buy that. So, here in the Chamber of the Ebon Vein, it comes out again, Warren took something from the Crimson Dawn last time, that being the juice to heal Betsy, the Capri Sun that de-disemboweled her, re-emboweled, re-emboweled her. Re-emboweled. And now he has to give something to balance it out. And while he gave part of Betsy last time, the choice was his, so the debt is his. And this explanation, I kind of dig. I also appreciate that the comic does point out how this makes that previous story make no goddamn sense. Yeah, Warren keeps on asking why they didn't just do this in the first place, and Gomer keeps on deflecting, and it's pretty funny. Now is not the time to debate ethics, Worthington. The undercloaks have pierced my mystic shield. Now's the perfect time. We could have prevented all of this. You should have told me the truth. What did it matter? You loved her then? Can the same be said now? I mean, Warren's got issues. He could debate that one for a while. That said, lampshading the continuity problem does not make it any less a continuity problem, my dudes. So after they, they make their sacrifice, and this time it's it's a little energy figurine of Warren, not of Betsy, um, they, they go and they attack Koragari and his uh, very limited forces and are immediately overrun with ninjas and neon spiders. And Kurigari gloats about how great it's going to be to murder the world. And Warren tells Betsy to fight and that he loves her. And uh, yeah, when Kurigari commands Betsy to raise her sword to finish off her boyfriend... She instead reverses the sword and runs Karagari through. She says the darkness that has been feeding on her is gone, and her blue skin and ninja costume crackle off to reveal good old regular swimsuit ninja Betsy. And there is a whole lot to unpack about someone getting darker skin as an emblem of being overcome by evil. Uh, there is. It's true. It's true. I mean, I think this was going for the shadow thing, but, you know, there's there's something going on there as well. And so, yeah, like you mentioned earlier, Jay, it's the pure love of a pure dude that has de-evilified Betsy. In this story, she has almost no agency. She makes almost no choices of her own. Not only is it the pure love of a pure dude, it is the pure love of a shitty boyfriend, which is the most daredevil plot of all. The pure love of a pure douche. And, you know... In terms of larger continuity, I think I'm going to look at this a little bit more charitably, because the fact is, Warren has been angsty as shit, and especially in that one ballpoint pen one-shot with all the ghost birds, 
Betsy was really there for him at the beginning and at the end. So it is a two-way street, but we also have to look at this as just a miniseries that stands alone. And in that context, I don't think it does work as well. In fact, while I think Warren's pretty well characterized in this, we don't really get to know who Betsy Braddock is. She's barely herself the entire time. There's barely any interiority to her, and that's unfortunate because she's a fascinating character. Yeah, Betsy's basically a MacGuffin in this arc, and for all that it's nominally Psylocke and Archangel, or Archangel and Psylocke, Crimson Dawn, it's really an Archangel story. Yeah, yeah. Well, all the Undercloaks bow before Gomer, since he's now the new real Proctor, at which point the various good guys collectively finish off Kurigari, who vows to return, but thankfully, so far, never has. Marvel creatives, if you're listening to this, don't do that. Some things deserve to stay dead. And Warren, for his part, tries to explain what happened with the whole soul exchange situation. Since I withdrew some of the Dawn's essence to save your life, I had to make an equivalent deposit before the bank foreclosed on your soul. Wow. Someone's a member of the financial upper class. Rich people, am I right? Ugh. So there we go. Uh, Betsy still has her shadow powers, which admittedly are straight-up awesome. And she still has her cool face tattoo. See above. But she has her soul back. And Warren has less of either his soul or his life in general. I think it's the latter. I don't think he gave up some of his soul. I think he gave up a chunk of his life. Of his longevity, yeah. And he says he doesn't know how much he gave up, but it's worth it regardless. So that part is sweet. I like that part. The question of how this math plays out after things like the Dark Angel saga, I will leave to others to determine. Now, may we never have to read about the Crimson Dawn again. What I do like reading, though, are listener questions, and we've got a few of those. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, and Miles, this question is just for you. Um, they didn't say that, but we know. Um, the four most famous mutants that aren't, and as far as I know, never have been members of the X-Men, have got to be Michelangelo, Donatello, Leonardo, and Raphael. If they were to end up in the 616, which X-Teams would you slot them into? Would the Archie comics slash cartoon turtles be on different teams than the Mirage comics and movie turtles? Would they stay together or join different squads? Oh, oh, I'm so pleased. Not least of which, because I've just got done playing through multiple times the new Ninja Turtle Shredder's Revenge video game, which is one of the best beat-em-up games I have played in my life. Seriously, if you're a gamer, and if you have any affection for the Ninja Turtles, this will make you so happy. So, the Turtles did actually team up with some mainstream superheroes at one point. They teamed up with Batman. There were comics, there was an animated movie. I'm told they were great, actually, but I haven't seen or read those. There's a panel that, that goes around online every once in a while that's Batman telling, I think, Raphael or Leonardo, one of those two, about how his parents died. <laughs> that sounds right. But to answer your questions, anonymous listener, let's go in reverse order. So as for keeping them together versus splitting them onto different teams, the one time I can think of that an already established group of characters got their own team in the X-Line was the time-displaced original five X-Men. They were in all-new X-Men, uh, I think, for two different volumes. X-Factor. Original X-Factor. Uh, you know, that's true, original X-Factor. Uh, but again, they were also already very integrated with the whole X-Men thing. 
And that was referencing a big previous plot with Jean dying, with the Dark Phoenix thing. In this case, we wouldn't have any of that. Like, we wouldn't be able to compare these characters to already extant versions of themselves. We wouldn't have previous continuity links. So I think we're going to have to split the turtles up, kind of like you initially suggested. As for the Archie versus Mirage versus movie versions, I don't know. I mean, those are different versions of the turtles, certainly. But I don't know that they're different enough that it would affect their team placement. Maybe the details, but not the placement. If we were talking Rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the more recent cartoon, well, maybe that'd be a different story, but uh, that's bigger than this question. So, as far as the turtles themselves, Leonardo, it would be easy to put him on the X-Men as the most experienced and trustworthy character, but he'd kind of be redundant next to other leaders like Cyclops and Storm, especially Cyclops. So here's my plan. We make him a mentor of a younger team of students. He could be like Generation X's Banshee or the new X-Men's Mirage. And since he's all serious and stuff, the kids can rebel against him while ultimately respecting and learning from him. It'd be great. Donatello. Uh, He could really go anywhere, but I think he'd be the most fun as a sort of sympathetic straight man to a darker or sillier team. So maybe X-Force or Excalibur. He could lend his good heart and level head, even though he's not really assertive enough to actually change the team's iffy course. That would be the fun part. He would grumble a lot. Michelangelo, definitely early government-era X-Factor. They need somebody immature to not take the stuffy government stuff seriously and to provide an earnest and emotional heart, but I kind of think you can't have him and Madrox and Guido. That's, That's too much silly. As for Raphael... This is the character that goes on the X-Men proper. Because, I mean, he's basically Wolverine, right? And every X-Men team needs one of those. They need the violent, loose cannon, who the other characters have to keep in check, but who can also make the calls that they won't, and you can also just make for really fun, violent fight scenes. So that'd be great. Although I guess that also means he would eventually end up on all the other teams as well. Huh. Do we really want that? So, there you go. Ninja Turtles and X-Men. Two topics I love. Meanwhile, NecrotransCJK asks on Tumblr, if the X-Men would have a Pinewood Derby race, which one do you think would win? So I went through a couple of the obvious answers. So Forge, but he'd also be cheating by standard Pinewood Derby rules, likewise Black Tom. And I eventually came to the somewhat unlikely conclusion that the winner would be Jamie Madrox. Okay, tell me more about that. I mean, he's got the skill set of a wide, wide number of duplicates who've been out and running around in reality. He could reasonably have developed you know, the necessary skills for that. He's silly enough to participate, which is, I think, a critical characteristic. And yeah, I mean, he, he, he excels at being kind of the overlooked underdog who turns out to have weirdly relevant capabilities. Think about the whole mustard jar gag. You know, I, I like that. I like that. What about Wizkid? I mean, we know he's very competitive. We know that he works with machinery, but would his powers even work under Pinewood Derby rules? Again, I feel like I, I feel like the rules would would obviate his powers in the same way that they would forges. Yeah, okay, fair enough. I kind of feel like Cannonball and Sunspot might build something that did qualify, and they would play by the rules, and they would get like third or fourth place or something. But they would be so happy to do so that they would just still get drunk and have fun and celebrate. Husk would end up in second place, and she'd be really disappointed and frustrated and angry, but try not to let anyone know. And then she would work so, so hard the next year. She'd start, like, eight months early. And she'd still end up in second. Sorry, Paige. 
We're a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts, and this time it's... Hey, it's ZZ105. Thank you for joining us for six straight hours of ambient trance, only on ZZ105. Tonight's program was brought to you by Paige McKee, Robert Leininger, the letter V, and several species of psychedelic mushroom. Next up, a recording of John Cage's 4 minutes and 33 seconds, played at 33 and one-third RPMs. But first, a word from false proctor, Kuragari. I am Kuragari, and soon I shall be your master! For as the true and official and only proctor ever forever of the Crimson Dawn, all touched by the Dawn must serve me! But to become one of the Dawn's servitors, an undercloak, merely sipping upon the realm's blood is not enough. No, a bond must be forged beyond merely interdimensional vampirism and a rad face tattoo. Undercloaks, travel to that insufficiently red realm of Earth, and bring me the mystical loyalty of Ameth. I see that Ameth already wears our scarlet eye mark, but see to it that they slap this magical slap bracelet upon their wrist. And with that sharp snap, an undercloak Ameth shall be. And while you're in the non-crimson neighborhood, use your shadow skills to track down John Payne. True, John has already consumed enough blood from the ebon vein to sport an awesome facial tattoo. But after John figures out the fiddly clips of this crimson clip-on bowtie, the Undercloak's rank shall swell once again! We'll have, like, two dozen ninjas. Earth invasion time. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode alongside original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please, rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, Blob and Mimic go job hunting... And we finally learn a little more about Risk. But still not how to properly pronounce her name. Oh, I feel like that's the uh, the ultimate way to um to make a ninja less effective. Like you just put a bell on them like a cat.